Hello, and welcome to the RP HealthCast by Rooney Partners. I'm your host, Jeffrey Friedman. As our children head back into the classroom, and we find ourselves trying to gain a sense of normalcy and routine in this continuing pandemic, our global experts in science are still trying to determine the best way to combat this virus and to reduce its symptoms. In fact, we have 37 vaccines currently in human clinical trials and at least 91 preclinical vaccines under active investigation. So with all this research and billions of dollars, we should be hopeful that some sort of vaccine is on the near horizon. But the reason there are so many different compounds and different approaches to combating the virus, it's because we still don't know all there is to understand about it. Like, why are some people super spreaders? And why do some people get much sicker than others? All right, we understand that pre-existing conditions could affect some people's immune system. But could a person's inherent genetic makeup make them more vulnerable? Well, to answer some of these questions and explain the science behind this is our guest today. She's an award-winning science journalist, Claudia Wallace. During Claudia's long career at Time Magazine, she served as science editor and editor-at-large, and in fact, she authored over 40 Time Magazine cover stories, in addition to hundreds of other articles. She was the founding editor of Time for Kids Magazine, and she also served as managing editor of Scientific American Mind from 2015 to 2017, And Claudia is currently a contributing editor at Scientific American. Claudia, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great. Now, as a science and healthcare writer, you've obviously been covering the coronavirus story very closely. But as I learned from one of your articles, the pandemic became very personal for you right away. Hi. You're a New Yorker and you live in New Rochelle. Now, for our listeners not in the area, New Rochelle was the epicenter. It was the first real hot zone in New York. And you wrote about this experience in early March before our shutdown in an article you entitled Life in the Containment Zone. Now, can you take us back about six, seven months and tell us how your community changed almost overnight? Well, it was <laughs> it was pretty scary. Um, all of a sudden, we got reports that not only was there um, an outbreak in my city of New Rochelle, which is a small city. I think it's uh, the seventh largest in the state, but it, it's not a big city. Um, and we got word that there was an outbreak of the coronavirus illness, and it was centered less than a mile from my house. Um, there, there happened to be a synagogue called, I think, Young Israel. And uh, a, an attorney who was a member of the congregation there was one of the early, early um, people to contract the coronavirus and get sick with COVID-19. And he and his family got the sickness. And I guess he, he, pro- he spread it to that community within the um, within that Jewish center. And um, yeah, so uh, the governor declared it to be a containment zone with a 
one mile radius extending from that synagogue. And I happened to live within a one mile radius. So that was, that was pretty dramatic. It just meant, I mean, in reality, everything that we went through and that was, you know, sort of the first, I think it was early, it was the first half of March, but it was closer to mid-March. Everything that we went through, um, everyone else has gone through since. It was just that we were a little bit on the leading edge. So anything that I were to describe to you, which seemed so dramatic then, you know, oh, you know, they, they shut down all the, all the businesses, no gat, low large gatherings. We were asked to remain at home. Um, masks, as I recall, were not even part of the picture yet, which is, you know, in hindsight, that was a mistake. But um, they even sent in um, some National Guard to clean certain uh, public buildings. And it, it was really the, an early dose of what was coming with, um, with this pandemic. Um, personally, you know, it was, I didn't feel terrified or anything because uh, I wasn't part of that community that had the exposure. But it did make me think very long and hard about going to something like a CVS pharmacy that was really in right at like just a block or two from from the synagogue. I did not set foot in there. And normally that was kind of where I'd go. Personally, I, I, I head up the medical communications department at Rooney Partners, and I'm always working on and interested in educational programs for physicians and for the healthcare community. You wrote a fantastic article. Uh, you Thank entitled, you. <laughs> well, you wrote many, but the one in particular, uh, it says, why some people get terribly sick from COVID-19 uh, beyond factors such as age and sex underlying aspects of biology and society influence disease severity. And I want to dive deep into the story, but you start the article off very broadly with different categories of people who face greater risk of getting sick from COVID-19. And before we dive into the specifics, can you talk broadly, what are the categories? I think at this point, a lot of people are familiar with the categories. I mean, being an older person is is the single largest risk group. And there, there was a time when the uh, CDC specifically spoke about, I think, people over 60 or 65. But uh, that is no longer, we don't really have a hard cutoff anymore. Um, it's kind of, your risk goes up with your age. Um, and then another group, frankly, is men. I mean, me men are much more apt to have a serious case and to die of covid than women are. And that's been consistent around the globe. Uh, and, and then I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of these, so what doctors call comorbidities, meaning uh, existing conditions, illnesses, like heart disease, obesity, uh, diabetes, and hypertension, and a few, several others um, that put people at greater risk including anything that involves a suppressed immune system, like people who have had trans, heart transplant, lung transplant, kidney transplant, and are taking drugs that suppress the immune system. So that's another group. So there's that whole group of people who are more vulnerable there. More recently, um, there's been a question about whether pregnant women should be considered to be at higher risk. Um, and... Let's see, what have I forgotten? Well, there's, there's also, of course, 
there are groups of people who are at higher risk more for sociological reasons, and such as African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and um, some Native American groups, particularly in Navajos, have been hit very hard. Though um, this not really, this is not really due to biology, but more other kinds of factors that put them at risk, which we can talk about. Yeah, yeah, I definitely want to break that down with you. Um, one of the analogies you used, which I thought was was great to get kind of this mental picture about all this stuff up, you wrote that an individual's risk factors stack up like the layers of a Russian nesting doll. That's, I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> uh, explain, explain to everybody what you mean by that. Yeah, well, if that idea came to me, because I was trying to think about all the things, you know, as an individual, if you are one person and you're thinking about yourself, if you picture yourself as a Russian nesting doll, what's on the inner core of who you are? Well, your inner core is part of it's going to be your genetics, you know, what do you have, including your, whether you have an X or Y chromosome, which is relevant to risk. And part of your inner core is your age, because, you know, all your cells are aging according to, you know, how many years you've lived. I mean, you know, people do age at slightly different paces, but you can't really escape father time. So that's part of your inner core, your age. Um, and then, uh, I guess also, you, so that's gender, that's age, and genetics, three, at least three components there. And then uh, as you kind of go outward to the next level, I was thinking of that as things that you've acquired that maybe weren't part of who you were in the beginning, but you've acquired, maybe you've acquired diabetes or heart disease, or you've got a lung condition, or... Uh, obesity, too many pounds. <laughs> um, so that is sort of a, a middle layer. And then on the exterior, the outer layer of who you are, the you, you know, the you that faces the environment around you, you've got um, your exposure to toxins, your exposure to, you know, air pollution, your exposure to, uh, in, the, uh, it, in the case of some ethnicities, um, prejudice, discrimination, stress that's related to that, poverty, crowded con living conditions, um, all of those things, including even your occupation, what is your occupational exposure, those are all kind of exterior on the outside of that Russian doll and also play a role. And you talk about that also from a biological front. I mean, you wrote about the importance uh, of how B cells and T cells work in the elderly population. And you touched upon that as you get older, the T cells um, aren't, aren't there, aren't working as hard. Do you think that's going to have uh, an impact on coming out with a, a, a universal vaccine? Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And, and, are they going to be testing enough on the older population or are they afraid that it's going to skew the results? Well, I'm not sure. Well, let me answer the first part first. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think there is among the, the um, experts on immune system aging that I spoke with, there definitely was concern that the vaccine when we have one will be much less effective in older people because basically all vaccines are less effective in older people. 
So why would this one be any different? <laughs> it's uh, probably not going to work as well in the elderly. But if we get enough people vaccinated and the vaccine is really effective in other people, we'll have, you know, herd immunity. Um, and that will really help the elderly. You know, that will help protect them because there just won't be as much virus in the environment. There won't be people walking around with active cases. Again, there are a couple of cautions. The vaccine has to be effective. Uh, it has to generate, you know, good antibody response. And people have to be willing to take the vaccine, which is <laughs> a whole nother ball of wax that I'm worried about. Um, yeah, so, and then the other part um, in terms of the elderly, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know about if there's not enough testing. I think that once you give the vaccine, I don't know if that I doubt very much we'll be testing a lot of elderly people for, to see if they've generated a good immune response. It, that, might, that will probably only happen in a formal trial. Mm -hmm. That's my guess. And the, right. you know, the, the trials hopefully will tell us what kind of response people in different demographic groups have. Okay. So let's switch topics a little bit. And something you mentioned earlier, I found interesting and honestly a little bit scary. Uh, men were twice as likely to die from the infection as women. Um, can you talk about that data? And can, do you have any hypothesis as to why? Well, uh, I am a mere journalist, <laughs> but I, I have absorbed some hypotheses from people who know far more than I, I know. So I can, I can share those, but yeah, yeah. The risk, uh, men are roughly like twice as likely to die as of the infection as women. Um, but it, you know, the exact numbers vary from place to place. Like in Italy, 70% of the people who died by the spring were men in the u.s it was more closer to 60 percent um and you really uh so there's a little bit of bouncing around with different places um however um as to why it's actually probably a, a combination of biological factors and social factors and so biologically, we know that the female immune system is uh, simply stronger than the male immune system. Um, estrogen and female hormones tend to amp up the immune system. Androgens tend to, male hormones tend to dial it back. I, and so women have a stronger response to an infection in general. And, and um you know, there's interesting hypotheses as to why this is ca is the case, and it's the people I spoke to said it's probably um, the reason for it is probably because women, when they give birth, have to pass a lot of antibodies and um, immune warriors over to a newborn, and so maybe that's why women evolved such a strong, you know, immune system. Perhaps uh, the downside of the strong female immune system, though, is that women have a much higher risk of autoimmune diseases where the immune system attacks our own cells. So that's part of it. Also, men, men do have more of those 
um, comorbidities. They have more heart disease, hypertension, and diabetes at younger ages than women do. So, you know, when men start to get to about their 50s, they tend to develop a lot more of these conditions, which put them at greater risk, whereas women develop these ailments a little bit later. Um, if, so those are some of them. There's also maybe genetic factors. There's a lot of, there are a lot of genes on the X chromosome that uh, relate to the immune system. So there could be other things going on. Um, but just to take a moment to say, what are the non-biological? <laughs> uh, there have been studies that show that women are more, you know, 50% more likely than men to wear a face mask and wash their hands and to avoid public transit when um, during an a respiratory disease epidemic. So there, and during this pandemic, actually, we've seen that uh, women just in surveys, seem to take it a little more seriously. So I, I think we can't discount that kind of element as well. I, I think that is, I mean, I haven't had anybody explain that to me like that before uh, regarding uh, the women's health. That was fantastic. So thank you for that. There's some very smart researchers out there. <laughs> no, that is very well said. I think that was great. Um, the last topic I want to talk about, um, you touched upon, uh, issues and hazards of inequality and racism. Now, it, it's tough to understand at times how a prejudice or racism can affect health in a pandemic. Um, can you talk a little bit about this? And do you feel that this is mostly a US issue or has this been seen globally as well? Uh, I know it's been seen in the UK. Um documented there. I would suspect that anywhere where you have a disadvantaged population, that is, it might not be black, white, it might be Hutu, Tutsi, it might be some other Hindu, it might be anywhere where there's a, I, I'm just suspecting, though I haven't seen the data, that anywhere where you have a disadvantaged um, population, you would see these kinds of discrepancies. Uh, so, I but it's definitely documented in the U.S. and England. There's a, uh, I mean, you can the person who I just did such a great job explaining this to me in my interview with her was Kamara Phyllis Jones, who is a family physician and epidemiologist, and just really an expert on this. And she divided, she said racism puts you at risk through two mechanisms. One is greater risk of getting infected because of exposure, you know, at home and on the job and in the community. And I'll break that down in a moment. And the other is that uh, people of color are less protected so that once they get infected, they're more likely to have a severe case and more likely to die. So why are they more exposed? Well, think of the jobs that a lot of people of color have or think of where they're living. There's a much greater proportion of them uh, working in low paid but public facing jobs. You know, these jobs are all high exposure jobs and put people at risk of getting an infection. And then if you consider where people of color are more likely to live, a lot of, a lot of people of color live in high density, low income neighborhoods. 
So you might have a large family packed into a small space. There might be multiple generations, grandmother, grandchild, living in a smallish apartment or home. And then someone in that household may be going out and doing these high exposure jobs and coming home and bringing the virus home. So you've got all of that going on in terms of exposure. And then in terms of, let's say you've got the virus, what happens next? We know that black Americans have poor access to medical care and that they face discrimination within the American healthcare system. Many, even with, uh, to be specific about COVID-19, many of the testing sites early on were located in more affluent neighborhoods or required access to a car for drive-through testing. So that was not helpful to people who didn't live in those neighborhoods or didn't have a car. And I, I would add also that Black Americans do have a much, they have a 40% higher rate of hypertension, a 60% higher rate of diabetes than white Americans. So they're also carrying a burden of disease. And a lot of those diseases, um, Kamara Jones would say, tell you, are diseases that are related to poor environment, poor opportunity, poor living conditions, no safe place to exercise, uh, food, food uh, wastelands where there's nothing but junk food. So there's just all these things that come together. And then there's, there's actually the stress of discrimination as well. And there is a body of research uh, that looks at this. And it, it's almost like a premature aging. If you're living with constant discrimination and boy nothing brings that home more than what we've seen recently with the um attack with you know police attacks on black young black men um that there is there is an atmosphere of discrimination and inequity and that takes a tremendous toll on physical health and mental yeah. health that stress was certainly brought to uh to to the forelight um based on those those issues. And uh, so thank you for that explanation. Thank Dr. Jones for, for explaining it to all of us. Um, the last couple of questions I want to ask you about is a completely different topic, if you will. So sure. I know you're a big advocate of stopping the spread of misinformation about the disease. And you're also a huge proponent of ensuring that politics stays out of science. And uh, science dictates the decisions of the FDA, the CDC, and the HHS. Yes, <laughs> you you wrote about and you've known Dr. Anthony Fauci for years. So what's your take on all the news right now about the politicization of finding a COVID-19 cure? And do you believe sound decisions based on the science will reign supreme at the end of the day? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I cannot believe that we're in the position of having to worry about this. Uh, I've. I've been interviewing people at the CDC for more than 30 years, and I've noted that with every administration, not just this one, it's more layers of protection there, more difficulty getting to the experts. And finally, it got to the point with under the Trump administration, where if you want to talk to a CDC expert, your request is relayed to Washington, D.C., HHS, rather than going only to through Atlantic. At least that's what I've been told off the record. <laughs> uh, 
it's very uh, so politicized. Yes, uh, sunlight. No, um, I've been shocked by some of the things that have happened in the last few months because, as a as a medical and health reporter, you know, I always had so I always thought the CDC was just like pretty sacrosanct. They they sure they're going to make mistakes, but they're going to correct them as better data comes along trustworthy, always operating in the interest of the American people. That's how I saw it. And the FDA, well, the FDA is subject, has long been subject to um, the influence of the pharmaceutical industry that it regulates. There's always been tension there. But still, some of the things that we have seen in the last few months, the overblown statement about the benefits of convalescent plasma, for example, absolute wrong statement from the head of the FDA, completely misstating the data on that. When we don't really know how good convalescent plasma is, it, you know, maybe it's good, but we don't, we don't know that it's great. And he really issued, he had to, he had to walk that back. And then we're getting advice on the, the pressure that was put on the FDA to grant a temporary approval of, um, hydroxychloroquine and that they caved to it for a while also just blew my mind. I mean, that was sheer political pressure on the FDA. It was, there was nothing to support that in terms of high quality data. And that had to be walked back to. And now with, with the vaccines, um, we really already have in this country I don't know, something like 30% of people who are say they won't take the vaccine. We have the anti-vax movement that's been going on for years. I've written a lot about that over the years. And now we have a real need for a vaccine, and, and we need people to believe in it. We need for people to trust it. And we need for enough people to be willing to take it that will get to herd immunity. But the political games that have been going on with promising a vaccine before election day, it frankly terrifies me. Um, and not only because I personally wouldn't trust such a vaccine, but uh, who, but all sorts of other people won't trust. And it kind of adds to an already bad situation in this country where people are not trusting of vaccines and vaccines are just about the most powerful thing we've got. Uh, as a public health tool. So if we're going to further undermine belief in vaccine because the coronavirus vaccine gets politicized, that's just, that's just a disaster. Listen, you're passionate and you're passionate <laughs> for a reason. And, you know, we don't want to undermine uh, the words of our leaders, you know, and our scientists. And if we don't have trust in this, we're not getting out of it. So um, with that, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your passion, for your writing, for your articles. And uh, it's, it's very much appreciated and great job today. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for uh, asking such good questions. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or future story suggestions, please reach out to us on social media. Thank you. And we hope you enjoyed the RP HealthCast.